Well, it is always an absolute joy anytime Kyle or I get the opportunity to preach and to fill the pulpit. Obviously, we would rather have it be under different circumstances, like maybe Ken's in Cancun or something, not home resting. But as Kyle and I have been talking just about how to, to think about the topic and the messages that we would bring about what would be a blessing to you, my, my heart and mind kept coming back to Psalm 1. It's one of my favorite psalms. And so this morning, we're going to talk about the blessed path of life in Psalm 1. You know, I recently read that New York City has, get this, 600,000 dogs and 500,000 cats. Notice the dogs are winning. That is 1.1 million pets. Now, as you think about New York City, what is New York City predominantly made of? Concrete and steel. You're like, oh, where is he going with this illustration? I mean, what do you do with your pet when it dies? I mean, if your fish dies, you know how to handle that. What do you do when your beloved cat or dog dies? Well, I heard from a friend of mine that the city authorities, they recognized this as a problem. So they offered a service. They said, hey, if you're beloved pet dies, just call us, and for $50, we will come to your home and take your beloved animal and take care of it in a humane and loving way. Well, one enterprising woman saw this and decided she could give a better deal. So what did she do? She places an ad in the newspaper that said this, when your pet dies, I will come and take care of your pet for $25. Now, that's half. That's like a bargain. Well, what she would do is she would go to the local Salvation Army store. She would buy old used suitcases, two bucks a piece. She would go and collect the animal, your beloved, you know, feline that passed away, and she would put that in the suitcase. She would get on the subway, travel to the darkest, deepest, worst part that New York has to offer, and get off the subway station When she exited, she would walk over to a bench, she would set the suitcase down and begin to walk away as if she was lost or confused or looking for directions. And of course, those of you who have been in New York City, what's going to happen next? Some enterprising thief sees this helpless, unsuspecting lady not paying attention to her luggage, and of course, what does he do? He comes along and steals the suitcase, and he is gone. And of course, she, you know, being surprised, rather insincerely, turns and shouts, Help! Police! He took my suitcase. Easy 25 bucks, right? Can you imagine the rather rude awakening that that subway station thief is going to experience when he gets home that night? How excited he would be, thinking about, I just, I can't wait to see what's inside that box. I mean, there's a reason why who wants to make a deal is still on after all these years. I don't know. Should I go behind that door? Should I see what's in that box? I don't know, but I can't wait to find out. He gets home. He opens, hoping to find jewelry, money, a new pair of shoes for his lady. And what does he find? A dead cat. 
He wanted treasure, but his path ended in death. A lot of us are like those New York subway thieves. We are chasing after happiness, and we are willing to do whatever it takes to get it. Often it's the easy path that seems to offer happiness and success, everything our hearts desire. But in the end, the world's way brings what? Pain and trouble. It may feel good for a moment, but in the end it delivers only death. What does the world tell us? Here's the path to happiness. If you want to find contentment and joy and satisfaction, here is the way. You're not happy in your marriage? Find someone else. I mean, after all, you deserve to be happy. Don't settle. You ever heard someone say that? You don't have enough money? Well, look, everyone else has money. You should have money. You deserve to have that money. You lie. You gamble. You steal. You do whatever it takes. Take care of you. No one else will. You have too many problems? Well, wash them away in a bottle of beer and a gallon of ice cream. I personally would never struggle with that. Oreo cookie ice cream. Or maybe you binge watch your favorite show until you're numb. I call that the Netflix numb. You're not happy with your boss? Complain. Speak badly about him to whoever will listen. You know what? Show him who's boss. Don't work as hard. Show him a thing or two. You don't like your mom and dad's rules? Well, fine. Go to that party. Skip school. Secretly date your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Just don't tell anybody. Do whatever will make you happy. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, a 16-year-old is probably not going to say that, but are they thinking it? Absolutely. And when we begin to listen to the world, when we begin to grab the world's version of happiness through sin, through the temporary pleasures that this world has to offer... We come to find it doesn't live up to our expectations. In fact, what was it? It was false advertising. It promised this. It said, here is the way. So many have gone down that path, and they found that the pleasure of sin doesn't last. It doesn't satisfy like we thought. And once we start down that path, what do we find? Consequences. What does Galatians 6, 7 warn us? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. He knows what's going on behind closed doors. He knows what's going on in your heart. He knows what you're pursuing. He knows what you're doing. Whatever a man sows, this he will what? Reap. If you plant an apple tree, you don't expect to get pears. If you plant and sow to sin, what does the Word of God promise? You're going to get what's coming. It's not going to be good. And so what does the world's suitcase offer? What, what if we grab that suitcase, what is it full of? Well, John, 1 John 2 tells us what it's full of. It's full of the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life in 1 John 2, 16. That's what the world is selling. It promises all the earthly treasures we could hope for. But for those who seek it, for those who open it, for those that actually take that plunge, they find that in the end it only delivers death. How do we know that? What are the wages of our sin? Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. 
And that's not only talking about eternality, it's also talking about now. Sin separates, it brings trouble, it brings pain. So how can we find happiness and joy in our life today? How can we have happy marriages, happy families? How can we learn to recognize and avoid the false advertising of the world's pleasures? Well, the psalmist understands man's longing for contentment, for happiness. And here in Psalm 1, we find the answer is not by putting ourselves first, following the path of the world. Instead, it is putting God first, following the path that He has laid out for us. So if you're not there yet, please open up your Bibles to Psalm 1. Let me give us a little bit of context before we jump into the opening psalm of the Psalter, the book of Psalms. The overarching theme of Psalms, what would you expect it to be? Worship. That's why so many times Christian artists take the Psalms and turn them into what? We sing them. We sing them. Its purpose was to present a very personal response to the person and work of God. The the Psalms were set to music. They served as the temple hymn book. They served as a devotional guide for the Jewish people, both publicly and privately. And while we don't know exactly who wrote Psalm 1, it is a fitting introduction to the book because it summarizes the two paths of life open to every person. Again, is this a reoccurring theme? What did Jesus say? There is a broad way and there is a what? Narrow way. There's not a third way. There's not a fourth way. There's how many ways? Two. There's a broad way and many are on it. It's the path of eternal destruction. But there's a narrow way. You can either go your way, the world's way, or you can go what? God's way. So we see that here in Psalm 1, throughout the Psalms, even throughout the Proverbs. Now, since this, I don't know if you've thought about this when reading Psalm 1, if this is a songbook, if it's a devotional guide, what would you expect the first psalm to be? A call to what? Praise, what we just did. You would expect Psalm 1 to be all about calling God's people to worship Him and praise Him. Is that what Psalm 1 is? No, in fact, it's classified, the type of psalm is a wisdom psalm. It's interesting. It's a wisdom psalm. It's not calling us to praise. It's calling us to righteousness. The reason being that true and sincere devotion must always precede true and sincere praise. True devotion to God should always lead to true adoration of God. That's what Chris was talking about. How does God feel when we come to Him and we give Him these these half-hearted expressions when when we live one way on Sunday and a different way on the, uh, the rest of the week? What does He do with that? He doesn't like it. He wants us to give Him what? Wholehearted devotion. That when we sing, it's an expression of the way we've been living all week. So Psalm 1 is going to teach us how to wisely stay on the blessed path of life, and how to avoid the sorrowful path of death. So we're going to compare and contrast these two paths this week and next week. In fact, I talked to Ken about this, so he, we decided to make this into a two-parter. You guys are looking at the outline. You can already see where this is going. Chris, it seems like you're only going to get to verse 1 today. Yep. Wait, you're going to spend a whole message on one verse? Yep. And then we're going to cover part 2 next week. 
and really just gives us an opportunity to unpack what's going on because this psalm is so instrumental not only in the Psalter, but I think in our heart and life. I think it's worth taking time to work through it. So let me read Psalm 1. Follow along with me. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In verses 1 to 3, we find the way of the righteous, which is this blessed path of life. And in these three verses, the way of the righteous is portrayed in terms of what it prohibits in verse 1, what it promotes in verse 2, and what it promises in verse 3. Well, to get to those, you're going to have to come back next week. So this morning, I just want us to focus on this first one. What does the way of the righteous prohibit? Verse 1 starts, how blessed is the man. How blessed. It's interesting, this noun in the Hebrew is in the plural. Now, whenever the psalmist does that, takes a noun and makes it into the plural, the idea is it's intensifying. Blessings has the idea of supremely happy and content and, and just being fulfilled in life to the brim. In fact, it's used here in Psalm 1 more like an exclamation. You could almost say, oh, the happiness of the man who avoids the influence of the wicked. The joy. Like there are numerous psalms which describe this type of blessing. We see these throughout the book. Look at Psalm 512. Let's just look at a few of them. This will help us get a, a fla- the flavor and the sense of what this word means. Psalm 512, For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor, as with a shield. Again, to be blessed by God means we experience his what? His favor, like a shield surrounding us. How about Psalm 32? This is one of our favorite psalms because we sin a lot. Psalm 32, look at Psalm 32, 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Covered by what, church? The precious blood of Christ. Verse 2, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, whose spirit there is no deceit. If God was to keep account, we would all fail, but he forgives. How blessed is that man? Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. God is good. His nearness is to my good because He is a great God, worthy of praise. He protects me. He provides for me. So when I encounter trouble and I run to Him as a refuge, it is to my good. And do we need a refuge in these days? COVID, the Democrats are in charge. Hopefully you're praying for them, not the imprecatory type. I know some of you. 
Lord, bring judgment upon. We need to be praying for them. There's a lot of uncertainty. Psalm 41 describes Him as our deliverer. Psalm 67 says, why does God bless us? He blesses us so that in our blessing He would make His name great, that all the nations would come to know Him so they would praise Him. Psalm 94.12, blessed is the man whom God chastens. What does that mean? When God disciplines you, is it for your good? Absolutely, because the farther away you are from sin, the more God helps you to see the sin on the inside that leads to the sin on the outside, the better it is for you and me. So when He disciplines us for our good, that is blessing. And then, of course, what does Psalm 19, 1 and 2 say? How blessed is the man who loves the law of God, who follows it and obeys it. Is there blessing in obedience to God's Word? Absolutely. Just gives us kind of a taste of what does it mean to be blessed, to be supremely happy, experience blessings. Well, this is divine happiness, and it's sourced in God, not in circumstances. That's why so many of these Psalms talk about God, what He's doing. We are divinely happy as we cling to God's perfections and His promises. If that's who God is, if that's what God's promised, then I can count it. I can live in light of that. In fact, in the New Testament, just one verse, probably the most famous verse talking about being blessed, we find in Matthew chapter 5. Sermon on the Mount, what is it? The B attitudes. You guys remember how it goes in verse 3? Blessed are the, what? Gentle. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. And then this one, this one is a head scratcher. Blessed are the, what's the last one? Persecuted? When they say things, when they mock you, when they ridicule you, when they throw you in jail, when they kill your loved one for following Christ, blessed, happy, how can that be? Because the happiness that we see here in Psalm 1 is the same happiness we see in Psalm 5. Why are we happy? Why are we blessed? Why do we have joy? How does the world define happiness? I'm happy as long as what? Things are going my way. Things are good. Circumstances work out. My dreams are coming true. Things are looking up. But the minute something comes and changes that or twists that, what happens? My happiness is sourced in the circumstance rather than God is my creator. And so that's why when Jesus is saying, look, you are happy if all of these beatitudes are character traits of the man or woman with faith in the Lord who says, God, I'm following you. Come what may, I know, be it good or bad, nothing, church, what can separate us from the love of God? What? Nothing. Not height, nor death, nor demons, nor things above, things below. Nothing, not even death, can separate us from the love of God. So I know God is on the throne. He's going to take care of me here on earth. But guess what? Is that where it stops? Because what else do we have, Christian, to look forward to? Come, Lord Jesus, quickly. The hope of heaven 
You can take my house. You can take my life. You can take my stuff. You can take my children. You can take my husband and lock him up. I have Jesus. And that's why Paul, that's why Peter, that's why all of the ones who got imprisoned could sit there and rejoice. And some of them even sang while they were laying in stocks. You can't take my joy because I have the Lord. This happiness in Psalm 1 is connected with the result of verse 3. We're going to see this next week. Because this blessed man who is on this blessed path of life is like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. It yields its fruit. Its leaf doesn't wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. Does that sound good? That's what the promise is. This blessing. Again, we don't know exactly how all of that comes to pass, but we can trust the Lord to bring it. Notice that this psalm in verse 1 is really a slow progression from bad to worse because here we're given three ways to avoid the influence of the wicked. If you want to have the happiness of a person who obeys God, if you want to enjoy the spiritual peace and divine joy that circumstances of life can never take away, then what must we do? Everything else he says in verse 1, we must follow. In order to be divinely blessed by God, what must we do? Avoid the influence of the wicked. Avoid the influence of the wicked. This is the prohibition of the way of the righteous. We have to avoid the influence of the wicked. So notice these three ways. Verse 1 is a picture of a person. First, what are they doing? Walking. They're walking near sin. They're walking through life. They're within earshot. And then what does it say? Nor stand. Now they're standing. They're, they're pausing to consider it. Maybe even doing it. And then finally, they sit down in the seat of scoffers, to enjoy the pleasures of sin, all the while doing what? Mocking God and calling others to do the same. This is the downward spiral of sin. So here we have three ways to avoid the influence of the wicked. Three ways. I want to spend the rest of our time just walking through these three ways. How blessed is the man first who does not accept the advice of the wicked. Do not accept the advice of the wicked. Notice the text. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Again, this is where you begin to adopt the wicked's way of thinking rather than God's. In fact, we would just refer to it as unbiblical. You allow unbiblical ideas of God, unbiblical interpretations of Scripture, of the church, of who He is, of who you are, and that begins to worm its way into who you are and what you believe. That's what it means to walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now, it's interesting. The psalmist says, the wicked. Why is someone labeled wicked? Again, who are they? Well, we have numerous passages in the New Testament that talk about what is a wicked person. In fact, Galatians 5, 19 to 21, we see in contrast the deeds of the flesh with what? The fruit of the Spirit. The deeds of the flesh. Paul tells the church in Galatia, he says, these are the deeds of the flesh. And then he lists immorality and adultery and impurity and sensuality and anger and divisions and factions and so on and so forth. 
He lists all of these sins, and he even says in things like this. It's not even a full list. But then at the end of that section, he says, those who practice such things will not inherit what? The kingdom of God. So what does it mean to practice these things? I think that is the definition of the wicked. Someone who is characterized by sin. There's unbroken patterns in their life. In fact, we would say that there, there's no true godly repentance. You say, well, what about the person who struggles with those things but says, I'm sorry, or, or asks for forgiveness? The question is, well, are they changing? Is God changing them? Because what will true godly sorrow do? It brings change. It brings change. In fact, turn with me to Ephesians 4. I think this is a little bit maybe even clearer than the Galatians 5 passage. Turn to Ephesians 4, 17. Paul helps us understand what does a wicked person look like? How do they think? What do they do? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Again, he's talking about, in the first part of this chapter, the unity of the Spirit. Then he gets to verse 17. Now he's going to talk about the Christian's walk. He's talking to the believer, and he says... Ephesians 4, 17, so this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you, Christian, he's talking to the believer, walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walked in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Christian, verse 20, you did not learn Christ in this way. Again, he's talking to believers who sometimes think and act and speak like the wicked. And he's saying, don't do it. That's not you. You didn't learn Christ in this way. That's who you were, not who you are. When he talks about the Gentile, he's talking about the unbeliever. And notice how he characterizes them. Futility of their mind. Have you ever talked to someone, an unbeliever, about things that seem so logical and make so, so much sense, and they call good evil? And they call evil what? And you're like, do you, do you hear the words that are coming out of your mouth? And what do they say? Well, do you hear the words that are coming out of yours? What is that? The futility of their mind. Why? Because they're darkened in their understanding. Believer, what do you have in you? Who do you have in you that the unbeliever does not? The Spirit of God. So that's why Paul tells the Corinthians that the, the natural man, the unbeliever, cannot understand spiritual things because they're spiritually appraised. If you don't have the Spirit of God in you, then your mind is darkened. You don't understand. They're darkened in their understanding. They're excluded from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them. They're not trusting in the Lord. They're trusting in themselves. Notice this progression, this ignorance this, this futile way of thinking, what does it do? Because of the hardness of their hearts, what happens? Their heart gets hard and callous. They, having become callous. You ever talk to someone, a friend who's not a believer? And they are committing sin. They are brazen about it. Boasting about it. And they are wounding people from their sin. And they don't seem to care. What is that? The callousness. 
It's like their heart is so hardened, they don't even care. They've given themselves over to it. For what? The practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Paul often uses this term practice. So does John, if you look in the book of of 1 John. The idea of those who practice sin. They're not characterized by a true desire to cling to Christ, to trust in Him and to repent. They're characterized by patterns of practicing their wickedness. Are you starting to get a clear idea of who the wicked is? And notice how they have given themselves over to this practice with greediness. They gobble it up. They've rejected God. They've rejected His Son. They've rejected His Word. If you've rejected all of those, guess what? You're rejecting His people. That's why they persecute us. And if they've rejected God and all those things, then they've rejected His way. And what's the result? Well, God's not at the center of their decisions. They're not trusting in God and His Word to guide them. Who is numero uno? Who do they turn to? It's themselves. It's the wisdom of the world. And so their actions are characterized by this. Therefore, they are hostile toward God and God's people, and they are characterized more and more by godlessness. Just like the days of Noah. Is our society getting better? I mean, some of you are like, man, what are my kids going to face? I mean, our society can't even determine if a, if a man is a man and a woman is a woman. Where, where do you go next? I'm a cat, I'm a dog. Well, no, they already did that. I identify as a cat. I am praying for you. Where do we go next? And guess what? Do we know wicked people? They surround us. They're everywhere. Everywhere you go. Do they influence us? From the movies you watch to the books you read. Listen, does Hollywood have an agenda? Does it? To love God and love each other and respect marriage. and Every new TV show that comes out, guess what is the new theme? Adultery, immorality, homosexuality. You're like, that's not the new theme. That's been going on for years, ever since Friends came out when I was in high school. But they keep pushing the bounds, don't they, of what's acceptable. Hollywood has an agenda. Movies, the books, the discussions we have with others. And if we begin to allow unbiblical thinking, unbiblical viewpoints into our system of belief, we are walking in the counsel of the wicked. You say, well, Chris, how does that happen? Well, number one, you hear it, right? You hear it. You accept advice on how to live. You make decisions without God in the equation. Maybe you listen to a coworker. You're just sharing a struggle just as a friend, and they begin to do what? Well, have you ever thought about, well, what about this? Well, you should do this. What are they doing? Counseling you, giving you advice. You hear it, but you also watch it, don't you? We accept the advice of others through their active sinful role models. Have you ever had a thought like this? Well, my friend lied and it worked out for them. Where does that thought go? What comes after that? They didn't get in trouble and it worked out good. What's the next step? You begin to justify and rationalize. You're accepting their advice, their counsel. 
Well, Shirley cheated on her test. She got an A. I'm sitting here working hard, getting a B minus. If Shirley cheated, I mean, I, mean, I got to go to a good college. What are we doing? We're allowing their example now to begin to influence us. So let me just give us an example, okay? Let's just say, hypothetically, and I know this would never happen at your work, at your school, that you work with someone, go to school with someone who complains. I know that hardly ever happens these days, right? They're a complainer. Anyone have a complainer in their life? You're like, yeah, I'm sitting right next to them. The Lord knows. The more time you spend with them, you might begin to think it's okay to complain. After all, have you ever thought about this? When people complain, more often than not, what they're complaining about is true. You're right. We have a bad boss. I don't even like Bill. He's a jerk. We do work long hours. You know how much money I made last pay, pay period? We're being underpaid. It's true. This is a toxic work environment. That's what all your coworkers are thinking. So you allow their wicked counsel taught through their example, taught through their conversation, to change the way you think about complaining. And what verse do you check out the window? Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Do how many things? I'm sorry, you weren't prepared. Do how many things? Yeah, you're like, oh. All. You're complaining about the fact that it says all. How many things do we do without grumbling and complaining? All things. That's hard. I mean, do you see what I have to work with? What I live with? What I drive? And because of their influence, you now believe it's okay to complain. See, we have to evaluate how are we allowing others to influence us as we walk through life. To avoid the influence of the wicked, we must not accept the advice of the wicked. Again, next week we're going to see how knowing and loving the Word of God helps us to evaluate this, so come back next week for that as we really compare and contrast verse 1 and 2. But let's continue on in Psalm 1, verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Well, what's the second one? Do not take part in the lifestyle of the wicked. That's what the psalmist means. He says, nor stand in the path of sinners. When the psalmist uses this term path, he simply is talking about a way of life. Like, like if someone is going to a college career thing, you say, hey, that's a good path. We even use this sometimes. What do you mean? That's a good trajectory. That's a good direction. That's a good goal. Work toward that. When the psalmist is talking about a path, he's talking about a manner of life. So now their wicked advice now leads to a change of lifestyle. While you were once walking amongst them, where you were listening casually to their advice, trying to filter out the good from the bad, if it's getting in, now you are standing with the wicked. So now you not only begin to think like them, you not only accept what they're saying, which is counter to Scripture, now you begin to actively engage in sin as well. And again, that's what I love about these, the, the, the idea of before you were in motion, but now you're standing. Guess what? You've landed. 
Your feet are planted. That's the idea. So now, not only do you believe it's okay to complain, you've justified it, you've rationalized it, you've accepted it, now what do you do? In fact, what do you become? A complainer. Now you're complaining. Before you were listening, considering, thinking, accepting, and now what are you doing? Now you're doing it. You're practicing it. You were already in their path, now maybe peer pressure to conform, whatever happened, and now you are standing with them. When I was a police officer in Los Angeles, uh, I worked with a specialized unit. There were eight of us and a sergeant. So basically, we always got lunch off together at the same time because we always worked together. We did, we did projects together. And uh, I think my sergeant was the only one who was a believer. All the rest of my fellow, the seven, uh, the seven other officers on this unit were unbelievers. Uh, so you know how Thanksgiving comes around? I don't know if you have this tradition. We always used to have this tradition growing up. During Thanksgiving, you sit around the table, and what do you do? Okay, okay, kids. And you know when you're young, you're like, ah, oh, i got to think of something to be thankful for. But your mom's like, hey, let's go around the table and think of something that you're thankful for, and let's share this. This is the opposite of that. All right? We would get down at the table. We would start eating lunch. And inevitably, one of my fellow officers would say, hey, let me tell you about my wife, man. And then he would just go off on her. And then, you know, because they always wanted to outdo the other, then the second one said, well, that's nothing. Let me tell you what happened to me yesterday. Talk about one of the other sergeants that he had had a run in with. And it's like just going around the table, I'm like, oh, it's going to be my turn. Because when they're done, all finished with their little complaint fest, and now all of their eyes are looking at me. What's the expectation? What do you got, Chris? And they didn't call me Chris. What do you got, Steyer? It's always about my last name. What do you got? Now think about this. If I had given in, the peer pressure to conform and started to complain, the next lunch, the next dinner, what would have happened? Does it get easier or harder? What do you do? You've listened to it. You've accepted the counsel of the wicked. Now you're standing, doing it, and what are you developing? Habits. Habits. Responses to the world and the circumstances around us. What is the wicked counsel and lifestyle that you are most tempted with today? It may not be complaining. What is it? Are you even aware of it? Are you fighting it? Well, to avoid the influence of the wicked, number one, don't accept their advice. Number two, don't take part in their wicked lifestyle. But then the psalmist gives us a third way to avoid the influence of the wicked. Do not adopt the fatal attitude of the mocker of God. Notice what he says nor sit in the seat of scoffers. You were walking. You hadn't landed yet. Then you were standing. Now you're doing it. What's the next progression? Now you're seated. Scoffing is exemplified. In fact, turn there to Matthew 27. This is probably one of the clearest examples of scoffing in the New Testament. 
because it involves our Lord and Savior. What is a scoffer? Matthew 27, verse 42. And again, you know, this is the crucifixion. Christ is hanging where? He is dying on a cross, suffering, blood, thorns, the whole thing. And what happens? In the same way, verse 41, the chief priests also along with the scribes and elders, these are the religious leaders, and they come, what? They were mocking Him, saying what? He saved others. He cannot save Himself. He is the King of Israel. Let Him now come down from the cross, and we will believe Him. (laughs) See what I did? I mean, can you imagine them? Ah, good one. Good one, Simeon. Mocking Christ, scoffing. You say you're the king, you have power to save, you've helped others and saved others, save yourself. Then we'll believe. That's the scoffer. And so now, Psalm 1, we're sitting with the wicked. Now this ideology, the counsel of the wicked has become the way we think As a result, it has resulted in a change of lifestyle. Well, now we are seeing the characteristics of worldliness. The deeds of the flesh are coming out. Instead of the the fruit of the Spirit, I'm seeing more of that other stuff. But now, I become a scoffer. This is an anti-God attitude. And now, you begin to influence others with this anti-God cancer. That's what it is. I mean, when they went in and took out the brain tumor, I was like, if that thing's cancer, get as much of it. If you leave a little bit of cancer, what happens? It spreads. You not only think and act like the wicked, now you encourage others to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Turn with me to Hebrews 11. Hebrews eleven twenty four. We're not the only ones who have had to face this, are we? Sometimes it's helpful to look at the examples, and we turn to Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. All of these godly men and women, the triumphs of faith here in Hebrews 11. Notice starting in verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. They were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. You're not the only only one who's been tempted to go along to get along. Again, what is Moses giving up? What does it mean to endure ill treatment with the people of God? They were slaves. If he had stayed... In the house of the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh's daughter, he would have lived like a king, like a god. And he gave all that up and endured ill treatment and eventually had to go through the desert, and you know the rest of the story. So now you not only believe it's your right to complain, you complain about everything. But now you take it to the next step. You begin to actively encourage others to complain. In fact, how do we do this? Well, you make fun of someone if they won't complain along with you. You ever had someone do that to you? It's crafty. You begin to encourage others to complain by bringing up reason for complaint. 
It's kind of like they're throwing you an underhand softball pitch and just waiting for you to swing. It's like, come on, you can't miss that. You just start bringing it up. You reward others for complaining. Oh, that was a good one. You really got him good. You become a scoffer, one who scorns and ridicules God, his word, his ways, his people. You start saying, God doesn't care about us. If he did, he wouldn't have allowed my friend to die of cancer. God doesn't care about us. You ever heard a friend say that, a family member? It's heartbreaking. I had two friends growing up, Christian friends, like me, both raised in Christian homes, both professing Christians at a young age. Today, as far as I know, they are both living a pagan, apostate lifestyle. They both profess Christ. They both now are in the world and of the world, openly flaunting their sinful habits and their rejection of Christ. It's heartbreaking. I look back on our childhood with these two friends, and I now realize that they began to accept worldly thinking in small doses. It's not like it was just a dump truck. It was little bits. This in turn gradually affected their priorities until their lifestyle became more worldly than godly. Again, this was over years. Eventually, I had to sever my relationship with both of them. Why? You're like, man, that sounds harsh. Why? Because I was 19 years old. I was not strong enough at that time, to resist their active, sinful, mocking influence in my life. In fact, back then, I just remember I took some heat from this. I had a couple of friends that said, man, you're just going to let your friends drown? You're going to let them drift away from Jesus? You're being selfish, Chris. You're unloving. You need to be more patient with them. And I was. I was trying to be more patient with them. Turn with me to James 4.4. This was a conviction I had to come to at some point. as I encountered the ungodly counsel, the lifestyle, and the scoffing of these two friends who profess Jesus Christ. Let's see if I can find the book of James. There it is. thought I lost it. Never happened to you. You're like, man, where did First Timothy go? <laughs> see, pastors do it too. You're not the only ones. James 4.4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Over time, I began to realize that my friendship with these two Christian friends was becoming more and more worldly. It didn't start out that way. I was trying to encourage them. I was trying to help them. I was trying to live a godly life. When I heard or saw them do things that were sinful, I tried to go into their life and call them to repent Again, what has Kyle been preaching on? Biblical peopling with the fool and with the believer. We are called to this. It's the one others of Scripture. But what I realized is we were, all of us, accepting the wicked's advice, living their lifestyle, growing more and more of the fatal attitude of the mocker. We were becoming friends with the world. And while I tried to help them, in fact, the opposite happened. Let me explain it this way. If we all go out to the park at Lake Conroe and we're all standing there and we see someone drowning a mile away, who do you send out? Your weakest swimmer? If you send your weaker swimmer, what's going to happen? They get out and the person's flailing and what's going to happen? They're both going to drown. 
Some of you might be thinking, well, Chris, that's just harsh. It's unloving. Well, let me make another distinction as I try to walk us through this. There was another guy in my life. His name was Chris, C-H. He was the neighborhood troublemaker. If there was ever smoke, Chris was there. He was setting things. I think I developed my love for fire from him. He taught me how to use fireworks in the, the most creative ways. I mean, we would sit there and one of our neighbors would be walking by or, or on a bike or something and we would light it and throw it at him and then run. Now, kids, don't do that. But I learned this from Chris. He was not a believer. He didn't profess to be a believer. And he was wicked. I mean, I, I mean, Shell, that's part of what, it's not my fault, it's Chris's fault. I just want you to know that. In contrast, in my one friend in particular, he was a professing Christian. He was professing the name of Christ, living actively in secret sin. And because I was his friend and in his life, I knew it, I saw it. In some cases, I did it with him. And you know what his attitude was? Growing indifference. I think God would rather have Chris the troublemaker who is not professing to be Christ and just he knows where he is as opposed to the one who says I am of Christ and is indifferent. How can I say that? Because what does Revelation say? Revelation 3.16. How does God feel about the lukewarm? He said, you're not hot, you're not cold, you are lukewarm. I will what? Spit you out of my mouth. Again, sometimes we find professing Christians walking the way of the wicked. And if these professing Christians are characterized by unrepentance and a lack of true godly sorrow, then what they have is sorrow according to the world. That's what 2 Corinthians 7 says. It's not godly sorrow, it's worldly sorrow. And guess what? Paul says that kind of worldly sorrow produces death. So they say, I'm sorry, I apologize, I feel bad for what I did, but then they don't change. I'll never do it again. Honey, this is the 50th time you've said that. It's worldly sorrow. It's not godly sorrow. Godly sorrow produced by turning from our sins and putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone because this is something God does through the gospel. Aren't you glad? So what do we do when we find professing Christians who seem to be walking the way of the wicked demonstrated by their wicked advice, their lifestyle, their mocking attitude. Do sometimes we find Christians walking Psalm 1-1? Absolutely. What do we do? Well, Jesus is pretty clear. Luke 17, 3-4, what does he say? Be on your guard. If your brother sins, what? Rebuke him. Confront him. Admonish her. And if he repents, what? Forgive forgive. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns you seven times a day, again, if someone sins against you seven times in a day and comes and says, please forgive me seven times in that day, what are you beginning to question? Uh, sincerity. I don't think you know what forgiveness means because you keep doing it. And what does Jesus say? If he says repent, you forgive him. What patience? What love? Is God a God of patience and forgiveness and love? Yes. So we should be that way when we, Galatians 6, if you find your brother or sister caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual do what? Restore them. How? With the spirit of gentleness. 
they're caught, go to them, help them be part of the solution in their life. Call them to repent. Call them to repent of the wicked advice and the wicked lifestyle and the fatal attitude of the mocker of God. Call them to repent of it. What do we do? 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, but what? Be patient with everyone. I don't admonish everyone. Sometimes i got to help, sometimes i got to encourage, sometimes I have to admonish. There's wisdom in how we go about helping professing believers who are struggling with patterns of sin that they look more wicked than not. But what about a professing Christian who doesn't repent? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians 5, and you're like, now we understand why this is just one message. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9, Paul says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of the world. Whew, that's good. I have to go to Mars. I'm surrounded by immoral people. They're in my neighborhood. I don't know how they got in there, but they're all over the place. They're in Kroger. No, no, you first. They're, on, they're certainly driving on Highway 105. No, no, after you. Merge. I mean, I was here first, but, you know, go ahead. You have some, you're Mr. Important. I get it. Surrounded by them. Says, I didn't mean the immoral people of this world or with the coveters, the swindlers, or the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a viler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those within the church? What do we call that? Church discipline. That's why it's there in Matthew 18. But those who are outside, God judges. God's going to take care of the world. God's going to take care of the unprofessing unbeliever. But then what does he say? Remove the wicked man from among yourself. Wow, this is serious. We don't flee the world, but we do remove who? If we have a professing Christian in the church who continues an unbroken pattern of sin, why is this so serious to remove them? Because look what it says in verse 6. Again, the sin that's going on here is Paul is rebuking the church in Corinth because they're allowing a man who has his stepmom. He's in an inappropriate relationship with a stepmom. And, and Paul says, not even the Gentiles do this. And you're boasting. It's not good. You allow it. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know what, that a little leaven leavens the whole dump of, lump of, do, of dough? Clean out the old leaven so you'll maybe a new lump, just as in fact you are in leaven. What, is it, what does that mean? Again, any bakers? You put a little bit of leaven, what does it do? Infiltrates the whole lump. If you allow... A professing believer who is secretly living or openly living a wicked lifestyle, what will they do, church? Influence you and they will influence me. And so you call them to repent. You're patient with them through the process. You call them to change because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for them. And if they refuse, then what do you do? You have nothing to do with them. Psalm 1 is talking predominantly about unbelievers who, because of their unbelief and unrepentant hearts, live a wicked lifestyle. But we have to understand there will always be unbelievers in the church. And is that your job or my job? Does this, is this going to turn us into to sin hunters? Is that, is that my job, to sniff them out? No. I take comfort in the fact that Matthew 13, 25 
Jesus says there will always be what in the wheat? In the church, the wheat of the believers, what will also be there? The tares, the weeds. And he says specifically, it's not for you to, to, to cover those. I will do that. So when you encounter a professing believer who is actively flaunting, living, or they get caught in and they won't repent, that's different than people in our church who, I don't know if you're saved or not saved, but I hope you are, and I'm going to keep pointing you to Christ. We have to avoid the influence of the wicked wherever we are. If it's in the church, we lovingly, patiently confront. We point to repentance. We point to Christ. And if they won't repent, then that's why Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 is there. In the world, what do we do? Well, we don't go out of the world. We're in the world. Again, what did Kyle share with us from Proverbs last week? We have to be loving the lost. And there's a lot of fools out there. How are you engaging actively, patiently, lovingly with the lost to evangelize them all the while doing what? Being careful that as you love them and build friendships with them, that you're careful to do what? Not allow their wicked influence to come into you. And remember, here in Psalm 1, whether it's listening to the counsel or standing in the path, doing what they do, or, or the seat of the scoffer, God hates it all. It's all evil. But just recognize this is a progression. Some of you might be in stage one. Some of you might be in stage two. Some of you might be progressing to stage three. You need to be aware of it. We're being influenced at all times, every time. We watch a TV show, a radio program, every time we look at an online article, a blog, Parents, what is the most influential thing in our kids' life right now? When I, was in, 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 when I was in high school, they would have said my friends. Now, what is the most influential thing? Parents, what is it? Social media. Who are you following? Some of you need to unfriend people because they are influencing you unbiblically. Some of you need to stop watching those YouTube videos. Some of you stop need to allowing the influence of a wicked world to come into your heart and mind. And parents, what's your job? Well, take away the phone, obviously, right? When in doubt, cut it off. Is that going to teach them how to learn how to live in a wicked world? No. You teach them. You point them to Christ. You share the gospel. You tell them why and what discernment looks like. And you walk them through this process. Because at the end of the day, what do I want my kids to know more than anything? Hopefully what I'm doing, what does Proverbs 4.23 say? I have it on the back of your handout. Proverbs 4.23 says, watch over your heart. How? With all diligence. You guard it. For from it flow the springs of life. Look, you have to keep the source clean to keep the stream clean. If the stream is clean, it's because the source is clean. Or, or, the, or the, that, that's exactly right. So what we allow in is going to help determine what comes out. I had a friend who told me she was watching a, a, a movie and she was laughing and they were mocking marriage and mocking God. I mean, it was just open, brazen, and it was funny. And she was laughing. And then the Spirit of God just convicted her and she's like, I have got to get out of here. She just got up and left. Some of us probably need to do a better job hitting the fast forward button or turning off a show altogether. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. The blessed man or woman is a real friend of the ungodly. Why? 
by living a godly example, by sharing the gospel with them. You're not a partner with them. You're not engaging in those things. You're not following them. You're not seeking out their approval. And there's a tender balance, isn't it? Because many of you work in environments where you are surrounded by wicked people. It's everywhere. How do you love them? You love them by leading them to Christ. In fact, the more like Christ I am, the more my holiness becomes a spiritual repellent against the wicked. You're like, spiritual repellent? Where do you get that from? We don't have time to go there, but 2 Corinthians 2.14 talks about that the ones that God is drawing, you are an aroma of life unto life. And the ones who are rejecting God, when they see your life, when they hear you talk about Christ and godliness, what are you? An aroma from death to death. Look, if something dies in your backyard and it's like mid-decomposition, do you like, oh, let's go find it. Come on, it'll be like a treasure hunt. I guess if you're in middle school, right? Middle school boys, they just love to go find dead things. And No, most of us, when you smell the stink of death, what do you do? Ah! Do you realize that's the picture of what your godliness is in the wicked world that you live in? If you are living for Christ, loving the Lord and loving the lost... They're going to see you, and the ones that God is drawing to himself, he will use your example, an aroma of life unto life, and draw them. Hopefully, you get to share the gospel with them. And the rest, guess what? They don't like you, because what does your light expose? Their darkness. Those police officers began to mock me. They began to ridicule me at some point because I wouldn't give in. They wanted me to go to the strip club with them after work. They wanted me to go to the bar. That was the life of an L.A. cop back then in 95, 96. And I wouldn't do it. I had a wife and my baby daughter, Caitlin, at home. And so they hated the fact that my, again, I was trying to please the Lord, exposed. They had girlfriends on the side. And they were living duplicitous lives. And they said, hey, Chris, if if my wife calls, tell her I'm working overtime. And I said, I'm not going to lie for you because I knew he was going over to his girlfriend's house. I'm not going to lie for you. It began, they gave me a nickname, Moses. I, I know, it's funny now. I, it didn't feel so good then. When they were calling me Moses, what were they doing? Holy roller, good for nothing, Bible thumper. They're like, you, you're probably that guy that was in the desert uh, you know, with the burlap and the, the locust. I'm like, no, that was John the Baptist. Ah, oh, see, he's a jerk. What do you do when you correct the fool? That's not good. But you know what I came to realize? Moses is a pretty good name because he was willing to give up the, the treasures and the pleasures of Egypt to endure ill treatment with God and his people. And that's a good place to be, isn't it? If you want to walk on the blessed path of life, then we must avoid the influence of the wicked. Don't be fooled into taking the world's suitcase because in it you, well, it's probably not going to be a dead cat, hopefully, but you will find sorrow, you will find discontentment, and as we will see next Sunday, eventually ruin because that's where the psalmist is going. Come back next week and we'll pick up right where we left off this morning by looking at what the way of the righteous promotes. Will you bow your head in prayer with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to study your word this morning and to be challenged and convicted. Lord God, we live in a wicked world and we are surrounded with people who do not follow you, do not accept you, and they don't like what we believe, they don't like how we live. So I pray that you would help us to to live and work amongst them, 
to not allow their wicked influence to come into our hearts and lives, but at the same time to be a gospel light in them to point them to you. And Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that does not know you, would this be the day of their salvation? Maybe they realize that they have been experiencing worldly sorrow and they know the change has not taken place. It could be because they are not in Christ. Would you please call them, give them the faith they need to turn from their sins and put their faith in you. It's in the precious name of Christ we pray. Amen.